0: Father, thank you for this opportunity to be here. We thank you, Lord, for your son. Father, as we step into this mode of looking at what you've given to us in your scriptures, we ask that you would take all of the distractions from us. We ask that you would take all of the things that drive us away from having our heart tied to this. Take those away for this moment. Allow us to recognize you, to recognize your work, your love for us, our need for you. We do love you, and it's in your name we pray, amen. There are certain times that we really recognize how much we are in need of something, our kids had an opportunity to watch our little kids for some amount of time while Allison and I were gone the last couple of days, and they all seemed very happy to see us come home. <laughs> now they did a great job. The house wasn't burned down. The house wasn't burned down. <laughs> no, they did. A, they did a fantastic job with the kids. And we had definitely had some people who stepped in to help them out along the way. But I think there's a moment in there where you recognize just how much you need the help of somebody else, in this case, Allison, to help the house function the way that it should. You know, it's Mother's Day. We have a tendency to forget or or at least not mention often how much we need our moms and our dads around. But... But this passage isn't about our need for our mom or our dad. It's really about our need for Christ, our our need for the Spirit to engage with us as we function in life. Now, we have to be careful to not overplay things. We have to be careful to not underplay things. So we're going to step into this Ephesians 6 passage for the final, this section of it, for the final time. This morning. And next week, we're going to move on to the last section of Ephesians and then on to a whole different sermon series that'll take us all the way through the summer. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. To recap a little bit, we're several weeks into this. To recap just a bit, our job is not to win a battle. Our job is to stand firm, right? That's the command over and over through the first portion of this passage, to stand firm. Firm. To what end? Right? We stand firm to the end of the gospel being shared. The proclaiming of the gospel boldly, which requires us to stand firm. Beyond that, we remember that this is the armor of God, it's His personal armor given to us as a last step in all of the development that we've seen through Ephesians 1 through 6 finally, right? Put on all of this armor, not some of it, but all of it. Because to only put on some of it presumes that we can handle some things on our own. We don't need his help to do that, which is not what is shown in this. We talked about the belt of truth, Living in such a way as to not be deceptive, not just not telling lies, but living in such a way as to not be deceptive. The breastplate of righteousness, which is really the culmination of all the things taught in Ephesians 4 and 5, what we are to do, the manner in which we are to walk, that is righteous walking. Feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, feet that carry us with the gospel to other people. And then last week, we skipped the shield of faith and looked at the helmet of salvation, that sort of culminating peace that protects our head and is our ultimate need, right? Salvation, the gospel that takes us out so that we can share that salvation with the people around us. So, what do the rest of these look like? Be ready because The screen has 39 different passages that we could go to. We won't go to all of those, but I have 16 of them marked in my Bible. We might go to all of those. There are a lot of passages to understand this. We don't want to turn this into some quick, fast-paced lecture, though people tell me I speak quickly all the time. But this is not intended to be a fast-paced lecture. It's intended to be a reminder of how to utilize the gifts and the armor that God has given to us so as to not be overwhelmed as we stand against the schemes of the devil, right? As we stand against the rulers, authorities, the powers, all of those, those spiritual forces that wage war against us. But if we don't understand what these are, we can't utilize them in such a way as to stand firm. So there's a little bit of this lectury mindset to it. There's information that we need, understanding we need to hold. But it's not just information. It's not just understanding. We want to take that information and take that understanding and move forward to saying, how do we utilize it? How do we see Christ more clearly? How do we utilize what he's given to us? He says, in all circumstances, this is verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arts darts of the evil one. It's easy in our mind to think, when in war, take up the shield of faith. When you're being attacked, use your shield. But that's not what he says. He says, in all circumstances, all the time, take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. There's two different things we need to look at here. We need to look at what is this shield of faith, and then we need to look at what is its purpose? How do we utilize it? So what is the shield of faith? The shield of faith is just that, It's the faith that we have, particularly and specifically in Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who came to do a perfect work on earth, to die a death that we deserve, to come back to life and defeat death so that our hope and our faith can be in him. Paul's already said that when we put our faith in Christ, we were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. That starts it. Moreover, if we go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, we read this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It very clearly on my little tab here says (sighs) 1-1. Maybe I should just start over. Pray again and pretend none of that just happened. Hebrews 11:6 And without faith it is impossible to please God for whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who earnestly seek him. So what is this shield of faith that we that we take up at all times and in all circumstances a faith that God exists a faith that not only does he exist but he's actively at work we're not deists if you know what the term deist is, it's, it's the idea that there was this God sometime in history who started all of this world going and then stepped back and went, huh, I wonder how this is going to go. I'm just going to stay back and watch. But that's not the kind of God that we have. We have the kind of God who not only exists, but works within what he exists, or what he, within which he created. And we need faith to believe that. Because without that kind of faith, it's impossible to please him. And that's the kind of faith that is our shield. Beyond that, we could go to John chapter 3, verse 16. You probably know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes Faith in Christ will not perish, but have everlasting life. Go to John chapter 11, verses 25 to 27. You may not know this one. You probably know the story, but you may not know these verses off the top of your head. So Lazarus has just died. Jesus has shown up to deal with the dead Lazarus to make him alive again, right? And Martha is speaking to Jesus, and, and she's, she's bemoaning the fact that Jesus wasn't there to save her brother, not understanding the fact that Jesus was intentionally not there so that they could learn, so that they could see him for who he truly is, so that they could see him raise Lazarus from the dead. She doesn't know that. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Belief, faith. That's what this shield is. It starts by believing that Jesus existed or that God exists and rewards those who seek him. He engages with us. It moves on to say, not only do we believe in God, but we believe in Jesus. Uh, We need to be very careful in our culture. Uh, This is a cultural thing, not a biblical thing. But in our culture, we need to be very careful to not talk to people while sharing the gospel and ask them if they believe in God. That is not a relevant question. Because as the scripture is revealed to us, it is not belief in God that saves us. It's belief in Jesus that saves us. If we looked at the book of James chapter 2, we'd see that even the demons believe in God. And they're terrified. They're not saved. They're terrified. Belief in God doesn't say belief in Jesus So we need to be very careful as we share the gospel with people to make it very clear that we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the gospel of God in general. And our culture has misused the name of God to such a degree that everybody can believe in God because God can be whatever you want. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about faith in Jesus Christ as our propitiation, our redeemer, our savior, our savior. So, the shield of faith is this idea that we believe. But let's be honest, don't most of us have moments where maybe we don't? Moments where not we don't believe at all, but we struggle. It's harder. Maybe it's just me. Maybe just I'm the only one who has has those moments. What happens in those moments when we struggle to believe? We want to put the focus on ourselves. We want to say this is all about me doing my thing at my time, my way, instead of this being about God and Christ's way and Christ's time and Christ's glory. Mark chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 says this. So, so Jesus is talking to this father whose whose child is, is possessed by a demon. They've been throwing themselves into fires and and it's horrific. The demon is doing all sorts of destructive things. And, and Jesus says, and, and I have to explain a little bit of that because I started in an odd spot. He says, if you can, and notice there's quotes around that. So this is the guy already said to him, if you can save my son, please do it. He said, if you can. I'm Jesus. I can, right? That's what he's saying. He said, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help me where I don't. Help me where I fall short. Help me where I don't have enough in me to even believe in a moment. I know that I want to. I know that I need to, but I don't have the strength to even do that in this moment. When you're in that moment where you don't know that you have enough faith to believe, ask God to give it to you. That doesn't make him mad. It made Jesus pleased. We can look at the story of uh, of Peter and Jesus walking on the water and Peter gets out in the water and he starts to sink. And what is his call, his prayer in that moment? Lord, save me. He didn't have many words. He didn't need many words. He probably was going underwater and couldn't say many words. Lord, save me was enough. Jesus doesn't need us to have eloquent speeches as prayers. He wants our heart to call out to him. And when it does, he works within that because when our heart calls out to him in need and asking for help, we've put ourselves in a place where we're being humble before him. And he responds to that. So so we've got this this shield that we're to use in faith to, to block the flaming darts of the evil one But we've totally ignored that side of the equation so far. What does it mean that we have an enemy who is throwing, hurling, flaming darts at us? Uh, We have a tendency to go one of two places when we hear that. Either think, oh, I've got a shield and this is no problem at all. Or think, oh no, Satan's there and there's no way I could do anything. I might as well just give up. Neither of which is really okay. what does Satan try to do? Destroy. Uh, We've mentioned this before. He knows he can't win. He has already lost. And so he seeks to destroy anything he can. How does he do that? He hurls flaming darts at us. Obviously, that's what it says, which doesn't really answer our question. Practically speaking, what does the devil do to try to destroy us? So it's important to know before we even talk about what he does do, what can he not do? Satan cannot compel you to sin. Satan cannot read your thoughts. Satan is not everywhere. He's not omniscient, omnipresent, uh, uh, omnipotent. He's not infinite in any way. He is finite, He's he's stuck in a location. He's got demons who do his bidding who are many places, but they're all finite. They can't force you into sin or read your thoughts. But what they can do is lie to you. And they can lie really, really well. They have a really good... History of discouraging people. They have a history of tempting people. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, which seems crazy that the Holy Spirit intentionally led Jesus to where he was going to be tempted by the devil, but he did, and for a purpose. But the devil tempts, he lies. He discourages, he destroys. And our shield of faith in Christ as our centerpiece puts us in a place where we don't have to be overwhelmed by that, destroyed by that. And in fact, we're given a weapon to fight against him, just one weapon and just one place. And it's the word of God, the sword of the spirit. So the spirit that we have the Holy Spirit and therefore we can have faith. We now have the sword of the Spirit and we're gonna to be told to pray in the Spirit. What it means to have the sword of the Spirit means to have the word of God and there's two different ways to look at that. One, the word of God is this, the scripture by which we understand who God is, the final revelation, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, says that we have this, more sure than experiences. This, the prophetic word. But John chapter one, verse one says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Who is this word? This word is Jesus himself. John one, one says that down in 14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And down in 29 and 30, uh, this is John the Baptist, or John the, John the Apostle writing, and it says, the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which John has already said is the word, and the word is Jesus. So the word of God is two things. It's this the written word of God to give us an understanding of God. This is not meant to be a guidebook for life. It does guide us in life, but it is meant to be a revelation of Jesus Christ that then guides us in life. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is Jesus himself. Revelation 19 talks about Jesus going out for war, and it's 1915. And it says that out of his mouth comes a double-edged sword to destroy his enemies. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says that the word of God cuts deeply into people, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, dividing us to the smallest points that they knew, dividing even that which is not physical about us. How do we utilize this word? Well, we must know what it is. We must read it. Psalm 119, 105. Psalm 119, if you're ever looking for it, pretty much just close your Bible, open it up in the middle, and then you're close. Psalm one nineteen one oh five 105 says that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. This is where it does guide us. It does show us. We have to read it to know it. We have to use it right once we do know it. Because to take scripture and then use it however you'd like, it's called eisegesis, however it centers on you and whatever meaning you want to get in it, does not use the word of God right. Exegesis is what we're trying to do in sermons and in life. And exegesis means we take a passage of scripture and we read it and we ask the question, what does this mean? Not what do I think? And please don't ever ask me, Brock, what does this mean to you? Because I will die a little on the inside. It's not relevant what it means to me. It's relevant what it means. Not what I want it to mean. So we draw meaning out of the text to use the word of God right, but we have to understand it so that we can do that. And then in understanding it and in in having, in having the shield of faith, we pray as the final piece of this armor, which is not typically talked about as the final piece of the armor, but it really is. It's that connection to the one guiding us, the one leading us, our general, our Lord. What does it mean to pray? Well, it means that you communicate with God. That's what it is. In in Christian circles, anyway. It means that we beg him. We go before him as one who is not in authority, but one who's in need. And we go before the Lord and we ask him what? what? Whatever it is that we need. We praise him for who he is. We thank him for what he's done. We pray in the spirit. What does that mean? One of my pastor friends sent me a a document that he has that has 50 different things that the Bible says about what it means to pray in the spirit, what the spirit is doing in prayer. Ultimately, what it comes down to is this. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He goes before the father in ways that we don't have the ability to do. We don't have the words for it. We don't have the emotion for it. We don't have the power for it, the strength for it, the perspective for it. We know what it is that we need and we go to him and he takes it to God in a way that actually makes sense. That's beyond us. He intercedes for us. Our prayer is supposed to be not only going to him and saying, God, here's what I need. But it's supposed to be a life lived in him all the time. An open channel of communication, if you would. Where we speak to him. He speaks back to us. This is his specifically given interaction with us. But beyond that, he guides us. In Acts chapter 15, verses 6 and 7, Paul is speaking, and he says, the apostles and the elders were gathered together and considered this matter. And after much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made choices for us. And I wrote this down wrong. This has been a long week. So I will find it. But Paul speaks about, at 16, 6 and 7. It's up there. Ha. Oh. You know, I have a master's degree and twice now I can't write numbers down. (sighs) Acts 16, six and seven. And they went through the region of Phalatia and Galatia and having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word in Asia. Do you know what word they wanted to speak? The gospel. And the Holy Spirit said, no, not now, not here. Eventually, He opened that door to them. But the Holy Spirit said, not now, not here. He guided them, not just through this, though they didn't even have this at that moment, not in the sense that we have it. But he didn't just guide them through this, but he guided them through what would I have you do in this moment? There's nothing going to be written in the scripture about while I'm walking down the street and I see somebody in need, neither needing money or needing help, and there's nothing in the scripture that says, here's how you choose when to say yes and when to say no. And so we say, God, just guide me. And if you want me to go speak to this person, guide me. If you don't want me to, guide me. If you want me to go there and do that, guide me. That's This communication component. Are we always going to be right? No, sometimes we're going to get it wrong. But we sense the leading of the spirit as best we can and move forward with that. And when we're wrong, we admit that we were wrong. And we try again. Put on the whole armor of God because we stand against an enemy who wants to destroy us. So we wear the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. We have our feet fitted with the gospel of peace. We take up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. We hold the sword of the spirit and we pray in the spirit. Because we are in a battle and we're trying to simply not die. And in standing firm, we share the gospel. We go through life. We engage in life. We we depend on the Holy Spirit. But again, if you remember, not just as individuals. These are commands that are plural. All of you stand firm. All of you be strong. All of you put on the armor of God. Us. Us. All of us, as a church, united, we stand against the schemes of the devil. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for allowing us as insignificant people to wear your armor and to be able to stand against the enemy. Thank you for giving us your word, each other, your spirit. We pray, Father, that you would be honored and glorified in us this day and this week. We do love you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray, amen.